one of the privileged people, Michael, to be invited back on as repeat <laughs> guests, which means we didn't have a fight. We didn't annoy each other. And more importantly, I must really like you and love you to have you back on. Michael Gradner, welcome no, back on. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, ha I'm happy to be here. I think, this is, I think this is awesome. I'm happy to contribute however I can. Well, the actual fact, Michael, this will be your probably third time on because you and I discussed... Oh yeah, work, yeah. Or mental health with athletes, but then you uh, yourself. We did the COVID thing. Myself and Mila did the kind of the the yeah. COVID type podcast lecture last year about sleep and immunity. So you're actually you might be you might be the only person that's been on three times. <laughs> it's 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 uh, the the air is rare up here, I guess. We'll have to make you a co-host. <laughs> we'll have to give you a share in the profits. <laughs> which which means you owe me about fourteen thousand dollars. I was going to say all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you you could be a part owner, which means you have to bear all the costs at the time. <laughs> uh, so what's been happening, Michael, in Arizona? How have you been? Um, it's been hot. Um, you know, so we just we're coming down the tail end of sort of a heat wave where it's been approaching one hundred twenty Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in the rest of the world, but. It's very um, hot. It's been, yeah. <laughs> it must, must be around but, 40 um, degrees at least. Something like that. Yeah. And, and um, but no, things, things are actually uh, are good here in that a, a lot of our research over the past year obviously was disrupted, but um, we've had to pivot, we've had to reframe and we've had to pause, but now we're, we're really starting back up and, and doing some exciting stuff. And yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's all good stuff. Yeah, it's good. I, I actually, um, obviously, uh, a shameless plug here for the Sleep for Performance seminar in August, in mid-August. But yeah. I think, again, that was one of those things where I was like, well, I can't travel to a conference. Um, you know, I would normally go to at least one somewhere. Uh, a number of the PhD students or research students I was working with didn't have a chance to present their work. And I thought, wow, well, my kind of budget for conferences, why don't I take that budget, put on a free event, and then use the cash yeah. left over for prizes, and it's yeah, been great. Like that was such nearly, a great idea. Yeah, it's great. And we've had like 20 abstracts in for 12 positions. The abstracts closed today at five. Um, we've, we've got nearly 200 people registered to attend. And, awesome. and it's, just, it's just great like, to give people an opportunity to, like you said, pivot, present their work, um, be able to collaborate and, and keep in contact. And I think over the last year doing this podcast and doing some collaborations has been really good for that because we tend to get with lockdown and siloed and kind of into ourselves. And I find actually in, in the scientific community, it's actually been, been more, I think, exploration of ideas and, and research and communication, which has been great, which is a testament to the community that we're in, I think. Yeah, I mean, and the sleep world is small enough and global enough that, that I, I don't think the pandemic really held us back. So one thing, so last summer, um, you know, I... I, I I likewise had a similar idea of like, well, we're all, we're all home, you know, we're, what can we do together? And so like, I, I put together this seminar series of like, I tried to think of like behavioral seat medicine's greatest hits and, and yeah. called some friends and family and, and we put it on. It was great. We had like 30 different presenters. And then this year, actually starting this Thursday for July, August, September, we're going to do a, um, to do something a little different, we're doing translational science and sleep and circadian rhythms. And, and again, just called, you know, friends and family and, and some people who I thought would be really cool. And over the next couple of months, we're going to have like 30 people, free talks, totally free, free continuing education for anyone who wants it. Just something we can do together and come together for. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And it's awesome like that because anybody can register for those. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, yeah, totally yeah. free. 
totally free. Um, it's, it's, it's not in a good time zone, but they're all recorded. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, all the ones from last summer are all online for free for all the people who couldn't see them because in the weird time zone or whatever. And we're going to do the same for these. So, Michael, i got to ask you a question. Sure. I know, I know they're free, and it's great, and I hate to put you down, and I don't want to put you uh, down. Sir. But sure, why, sure, sure. why wouldn't you just make a channel on YouTube and put them all on YouTube? More work. Oh, two things. One, it's more work because I don't know how to do that. Um, and two... <laughs> The reason, so we have it, it's all free, but people have to sort of register for it. And uh, okay. there's two reasons I'm doing that. Number one, the people who put these together, they put a lot of work into them. And I'm afraid uh, if I just put them on YouTube, people are going to just download and distribute them. And I want I want there to be a little bit of access control so that yeah, yeah. if people have the, their hard work in slides, at least there's some bottlenecking going on. Um, that's I know it's a little mean of me, but I... I just to sort of have a one layer of protection in there so we at least know who's accessing it. And then number two, um, the other thing is we want to um, we want to get a sense of who who wants to watch what so that we can sort of do better next time. The idea is to have enough barrier in there that it's not going to just proliferate wildly because the goal isn't the widest audience possible. It's to get yeah. it into the hands of everyone who wants it. But at the same time, this can help protect some of the intellectual property of the people who worked on it um, just enough um, and also can help help us see, like, you know, who, who wants access so that we can better we can we can do better in the future. Right, that That's being totally being totally honest and transparent. Um, and then the other reason why was I just didn't know how to set up a YouTube thing. And, and it was just one more thing to, to learn. Instead, I'll just go through like continuing ed and let them let them host it that's perfect michael you see what we did there we, we had an adult rational conversation i assumed that you wouldn't <laughs> put them on for some reason so i asked you a question you explained yeah. i took that information in understood it and now we're fine why yeah. can't we why can't well, we all just do this <laughs> you know i mean humans are weird <laughs> That we are. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Michael, you um, you published an editorial recently that caught my eye called Sleep yeah. Tracking Technology in Scientific Research, Looking to the Future. Um, yeah. Now, what's interesting about this is, um, about your editorial, is this kind of was around the same time and you made reference to a paper uh, by, by the author Chinoy and Friends. Yeah. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which I have, I also did a breakdown on my YouTube channel and on my podcast for about 30 minutes. And I got a lot of feedback on it and a lot of interest and a lot of questions. And I raised this whole kind of area um, of the validity of sleep tracking devices. So kind of as a jumping off point today, I wanted to talk yeah. about sleep tracking devices um, and this editorial and then like to follow the chain into the challenge with sleep trackers and with sleep problems and sleep disorders. So yeah, we let's, can we just start with a brief overview of that editorial that you had published in sleep recently, please? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so they asked me to write this sort of as a response to that Chinoy paper. Um, and, and the 30 second overview is what they did is they tested a bunch of devices that exist on the market. It was against um, in-lab polysomnography as the gold standard, but also um, an ActoWatch as an ActoGraph that's sort of a gold standard and, and, and standard in the field. And they tested a bunch of different devices, including the Fatigue Science Ready Band, uh, Fitbit, two different Garmin devices, um, Sleep Score, S Plus, 
and there was another one like early sense or something like that yeah um, and there's a bunch of different devices and they look to see first of all how did it agree with the standard in-lab polysomnography relative to the standard wearable and, sta and to the standard in-lab study in terms of sleep versus wake, but then also in terms of sort of the sleep, the estimated sleep staging with an asterisk because it's not really sleep staging, but it's an estimate. Um, and, and basically what they found was, um, you know, the, the, the really important take-home finding was under conditions that were extremely rigorous in terms of their testing, comparing devices head to head. First of all, a lot of them were pretty darn good at assessing whether you were awake or asleep um, compared to the gold standard. And some of them even seemed to outperform, at least nominally, outperform the gold standard scientific device. Um, probably because that, that device is, is an older generation and uses pretty much only movement where some of these newer devices have other signals in them that they can help to refine their, their estimation. And so maybe that's why they did a little bit better. And then in terms of the, the sleep staging, what they showed was pretty much across the board um, that the sleep stages from this device were kind of a rough ballpark. In, they were in the ballpark of what the polysomnogram showed. They weren't right on, but I don't think anyone really expects them to be, but they weren't terrible either. They sort of gave a, a rough estimate of where in general might your sleep staging be. Um, the, the level of accuracy fluctuated from like 60 something percent to about 90-ish percent for certain stages and certain devices. But I thought the take-home message was important that, that these devices are out there. They're actually pretty darn good. Um, it, it, and um, for what they're best at, which is detecting sleep versus wake, and they're actually not too terrible at the thing that they're not really great at, but uh, which is detecting uh, um, sleep stage. So, I, so this editorial, what I, there's a few key points I wanted to make in this editorial, and I don't even have it up. I'm just going to recall by memory because they're, they're things that I care a lot about. So, number the first thing I wanted to say is we need to get away from talking about research grade device versus commercial grade device. Yeah, that, there it is. Uh, we need to get away from research grade device versus commercial grade device because it's sort of like a you know it's treating anything that's quote unquote commercially available as somehow automatically substandard when the evidence from this study shows that it's not about quality where you buy it and how much it costs doesn't seem to be the point mm. it's it does it show that it works or not um so let's stop stop with that dichotomy of of that it's research or not it's we should change the perspective to the idea of performance in context. Um, and this was a this was a, a concept taken from another editorial by, by Chris Steffner and Kathy Goldstein, where they talked about instead of thinking about validation, where validation usually means does this measure what we think it's measuring? Um, and you know, you take a gold standard, and so it's like if you have a, a new bathroom scale, you want to see if it's validated, you find a bathroom scale you trust stand on that one and stand on the other one. Are the numbers the same? Do they change based on the time of day? Are the, is it in hot weather and cold weather? Are so, they, are, do they pretty much measure the same thing? All so, so Michael, I'm laughing because the other day, um, I'm trying to lose a couple of kilos, right? Or a couple of pounds. And I did the very <laughs> same thing. I moved the bathroom scales around the bathroom and I looked at the variation, right? As a scientist, so I think I looked at the variation in the location. And then I thought, hmm. matter. well, it did actually, it fluctuated by about a kilo and a half. So nearly up to two pounds. Really? Mm. And then I thought, hmm, 
I should do my own calibration. I walked down into my garage, grabbed the 12 kilo kettlebell. So what's that, about 26 pounds or whatever. Walked back upstairs. And as I moved it around, put the kettlebell on it until I found a spot where the 12 kilos from the kettlebell actually registered on the, on the scales. But interestingly enough, as I got on and off the scales a number of times, it fluctuated by a half a kilo. <laughs> right. And then I allowed it to go and do the body fat test. And it ranged from, I'm going to tell my body fat here. <laughs> it ranged, Whatever it is, it's better than mine. Despite, despite all my athletic endeavors, I am a chocoholic. Um, <laughs> it ranged from 17.5% to 21% within the space of two minutes. So I kind of wow. sat there scratching my head going, hmm, this is the same dilemma as we have with actigraphy. Is this yeah. range of body fat? Uh, so, so the, the weight was quite good. Like it was within a half a kilo. Right. But when we start looking at other measures, like the body fat percentage, it was this huge variation. And I actually, it's funny because you said bathroom scales. I thought exactly like these devices are good <laughs> at picking up like sleep time, but really bad at yeah. picking up like sleep stages. So it's nearly the exact same thing. And, and I'd only correct you by saying they're not, I wouldn't say they're really <clears throat> bad at detecting sleep stages. I just say they're not great at detecting sleep stages. Yeah, no, and I think yeah, that's a, there's a big word, difference. Yeah. And I yeah, think yeah, in the, yeah. and I, the reason I say that is because I think there's a bias in the field that like we assume that anything that's not really, really great must suck and is terrible. It's like, no, like there's there's a whole gray area in the middle. But that's so yeah. but that's the idea of validation. And I think the co the, the concept that um, from the, the Defner and Goldstein commentary that I love is this idea that validation isn't um, an event, it's a process. And is it validated in this group or another group under these conditions mm. and like uh, un, un, against what comparison? And, and there's, so, there, there's an unlimited amount of potential ways to validate something. So instead of saying, is it validated or not? We consider it, we can say, has it at least achieved a minimal level of validation? And then what is its performance in what context? Yeah. Does it work well, does it work better in younger people than older people and people without sleep disorders or with sleep disorders and things like that? Uh, changing the idea of is it validated or not to what's its performance in what context. So the idea of performance and context was something I, I wanted to really push that idea that we need to change the way we think about this. Um, another thing that I wanted to um, address in that commentary was this idea of sleep stages that, okay, it's not terrible. It's not awesome either, but why would it be? Um, we have the, the, why should something happening at the wrist correlate at all with sleep stages anyway? And that's because what we're measuring at the wrist is downstream of physiologic changes that are, that are, that are driven by brain-related changes that are driven by the same things that dra drive the, the same things that drive sleep stages. But you've now, you're, you're talking about cousins um, in terms of physiologic signals. They're related in that in that up there, they're both downstream of similar processes with lots of different elements of interference and input along the way, but they do share sort of common ancestry biologically. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so maybe they are sort of cousins and they will correlate with each other a little bit, but expecting a perfect correlation, I think, is unreasonable. Um, and, and maybe sleep stages aren't even where it's at. Maybe there's all, and this is what I think I wanted to bring up in the commentary, like, let's stop trying to turn wearables into crappy polysomnograms yeah, because yeah. they're never going to be there. It's probably never going to replace in that polysomnogram, except for the headband devices, maybe, but that's a whole other story. But in terms of other peripheral signals, why don't we figure out what they do well? 
Um, you know, when they developed DEG, they didn't think, well, what, what other signal can this approximate? They say, well, what is the signal and what could it correlate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and good, yeah. They, they, they didn't turn the EEG into a bad electrocardiogram. No, they, it was an EEG and they tried to figure out what it was on its own terms. And I think we're so hung up on this idea of validation that we keep holding these wearable devices to standards that, that are great starting point to understand how to interpret the data, but we never really look at the signals in, on their own terms. Like what if there are sleep stages in um, wrist-based heart rate data that no one's ever even looked for because we never thought about it that way? Or what if the awakenings we're detecting during using wearables aren't just missed awake, you know, it's so like you have a lot of awakening, awake epics in PSG, you have much fewer on a sleep diary and actigraphy somewhere in the middle um, and the assumption is actigraphy picks up more than sleep diary, but not as much as, as polysomnography. And so it's just, it's not as good at detecting wake. What if that's not the case at all? What if yeah. there's whole signals in wake that, that are being picked up on wearables that, okay, I'm going to say something really controversial, um, but it's fine. <sighs> and it's just you and no one else is listening. So that's fine. Oh, that's um, for sure. No one else is listening. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I've got this, this tree falls in the woods uh, thought experiment for, for polysomnography. So we have all these wake epics in polysomnography and they're scattered throughout the night. Um, they, it's, it's, it's very unclear what their functional significance is. People certainly don't remember them. Um, unless you arouse them during it and, and it persists for more than a few minutes. But these brief one to two epic arousals during the night that get counted as wake, how do we know they're actually awake? Are they awake? No, we don't know that. What we know is the device is measuring wake-like brain signals. But are they conscious? Well, they're not forming memory. Um, so, so it's this sort of the tree falls in the woods question where if we detect wake on a polysomnogram, but they have no memory for the event and it's not correlated with any adverse outcome. Um, is it wake? Is it fra actually fragmentation? I think this, this, we, we, um, I, I think we're very wedded to these measures without really stopping to think what they're actually measuring. Sometimes we're assuming that it's correct as ground truth. So we look, don't really look, know. Can we just chase that for a minute, Michael, because if, sure. if we're saying like in polysomnography, we've got like wake, stage one, stage two, stage three, and REM, and we oscillate in now these every night. Some people will be consciously, oh yeah, I woke up because I had to go to the bathroom. I woke up and I checked the phone. And then other people might go, I remember those two out of these 10 events, but I don't remember that they're here. Yeah, but let's, let's just say 10, right? Let's just say there's yeah. 10, 10 events, right? And they remember two, but they don't remember eight of them. So is there then, because this is actually interesting. My initial thought here is there's nearly like what you're saying. There's conscious wake and then there's unconscious wake, but we've never separated out the wake into conscious or non-conscious. And we've in never our looked, metrics. Yeah. And we've, uh, do we even look at signals to determine those or is there a signal? I, I think people started chasing like 40 Hertz activity and consciousness activity decades ago, but they ran into walls. I, I think we don't really know what to do with that. And, and, and I think that, one of the things that this wear this wearable data and the discrepancies highlight for us is that you know all of these signals are indirect measures of sleep versus wake. Yeah. They're all indirect. And so none of them are perfect. Maybe 
they're capturing different things at different times. Maybe there's, there's all kinds of things we can learn that we haven't even looked for yet. And, and that's what I wanted to bring up in the commentary that, that I think we're, we've gotten to the point where we can establish that these devices are capturing elements of sleep that are useful. Now what? What else can they do? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so like if you look at, you know, whether it's awakenings, whether it's, um, oh, so, so another thing is if you, this whole idea of sleep staging, I didn't bring this up in the commentary, but again, another controversial statement because it's just you and me, right? Um, that who, who did, nature didn't decide that you're in one sleep stage or another. We made that up. We made up sleep stages. They're made up. Um, but they're made up based on this pattern that we've seen that's pretty darn reliable. But one of the things we've learned from AI and machine learning sleep staging is that, um, and, and often this is treated as error, but I actually think it's the opposite, that, that two humans can't always agree on what stage a certain epic is because oh, yeah. it looks, is, is this REM or is this stage two yeah, yeah. or is it stage one or could it actually be wake? And, and it, when it's on the border, and so you got to make a call. It's either all or nothing. It's either stage two or REM. And then if your other reviewer called it REM and you called it stage two, that's an error of a discrepancy. What we're learning from AI and machine learning models is that um, they're weighting them, saying like, okay, this epic looks like we're 60% sure this is stage two, but we're 30% sure it's REM. And we're 5% sure that it's actually stage one. And we're very, we're, we're un it's unlikely it's something else. But what if it's what if it isn't just all one or the other? Like, what if there are elements of both, and that's why we're we're not measuring things. So I guess this whole idea of of using technology to see things that we just haven't been had the technology to see. Why are we using 1940s based sleep staging um, based on visual scoring, which was the best technology we had in 1940? Why are we still doing it that? Um, don't we have better technology, and can't we innovate? And so that's. So, so that's that's sort of the, the controversial statements I wanted to put out that maybe we need to put ourselves in the minds of Hobart and Loomis and, and those pioneers in the, in, the, in the 30s who looked at these signals and didn't know what they saw and tried to figure it out instead of mm. just mapping it onto what we already knew. I think that's that's a really interesting kind of probe to to the field because as you were talking, I was thinking about like what you said with the EEG signals, what is the signal, right? But right. if you look at, let's say, in, in similar areas, like actigraphy initially, to my understanding, was developed to measure physical activity, not for sleep. And it was just basically the reverse. Went, oh, I can actually tell when people are asleep. But initially, there were an activity counter for yep. basically how many steps people do in a day. So like when people go get your 10,000 steps in, that was the initial design. And it was only the opposite that we looked at for sleep. And then that kind of bore a whole new design of wearables. Then the other thing I think about as well as DEXA scans, that they were originally right. designed for bone density in older populations, not for body fat percentages, but now they've come this device for, in, you know, if you go to like the Australian Institute of Sport, they've got a DEXA machine, not to measure bone density in a 17 year old <laughs> judo athlete, but to measure their body fat composition to see what weight they can potentially compete at in the Olympics. So what we've done right. is, I think what you're, it's interesting because it's nearly like, oh, it does this, but what else can it do? Like what's the 50 yeah. years as opposed to going, wait now, this is what it does. Let's delve into this. And I think that's right. probably what we're missing because we're, it's like with your phone, like you're, you're probably, you're definitely old enough, Michael, to remember this. And, and, so, am, and so am I, I mean this in the, in the same. My first bracket. phone was a rotary. 
<laughs> well, yeah, like I was telling my, my I, I have a great nephew, by the way. So I have a niece who has a kid and I'm only 43. But anyway, that's another story. Um, <clears throat> I was telling them about like phones that you would turn. But anyway, um, it's the same thing as well. When we got a mobile phone and like, you know, in the mid to late 90s, when you had those big brick Nokia phones and they were huge, and you had them in your pocket, you looked really cool at the bar having a drink and you had an antenna <laughs> that you would pull out. It was like, wow, we can make a phone call wherever. Now the phone has become, oh, that's a phone, but it's all the other uses now and the advancements. Right, who uses it as a phone? Who makes calls anymore? Like Some people want to, I text people and I say to them, what is the point in you having a phone? Because every time I ring you, I don't answer. Because I still want to ring people (laughs) as opposed to text them. I really do not like texting or messaging. I want to ring, right? And I know people that will never answer a phone. Yeah, I mean, they're really palm-top computers that have phone capabilities. They're not they're, they're not phones anymore. Yeah. So we've, we completely use it for a different purpose again. You know? <laughs> so it's, exactly. it's bizarre. Yeah. Like we, we actually talk I, I love this idea of taking a step back and, and thinking like, okay, what? so when I was an undergraduate, um, I, the, the lab 2007. I, I, uh, no, way before that. Oh, 2006. Um, <laughs> so in, 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 the, in the late 90s, early 2000, when, when around the year 2000, when I was a, um, uh, an undergraduate at, in Michael Perlis's lab in Rochester at the time before he moved to Penn, one of his things he used to always say, one of his, he, anyone who knows Michael, he has these he has sayings and he's got these, these brilliant sayings. And one of them was, the first three rules of science are know your measures, know your measures, and know your measures. Mm. And, and he said, like, he's like, you, you can't forget because people get, people get lost in their technique and in their measures, and they forget what it is they're actually measuring. Like, you're not measuring depression. You're measuring responses on a questionnaire. You're not measuring sleep. You're measuring signals captured through electrodes, through this, generated here by, like, what are you actually measuring? And then if you can, if you can be, A, it brings humility to your, your conclusions, and, but it also helps you innovate. Because you you could take a step back and, and see things that other people aren't seeing, and and you get to see connections that that other people are sort of taking for granted. But I I always enjoy doing that, especially when it comes to technology and sleep technology. And now it's such an awesome time to be involved in sleep technology because it's it's happening. I remember yeah, when actigraphy yeah. was a thing, you need to have a whole paragraph in your paper explaining what actigraphy was and justifying that it wasn't a bunch of nonsense, and like that it was allowed to be used. And now it's like a it's foregone. Like of course everyone accepts it. Um, I, I remember those days. My dissertation, the devices I used to measure actually was like the was was this big on your wrist. Like a sundial. Uh, it was, it was <laughs> yeah, it was, it was yeah, it was practically it was is the the size of what is now a phone, and it was all analog and had I think sixty four kilobytes of memory in it. Um, and and look how far we've come. And that's why I think it's fun to see like rather than just have have a better mousetrap but what else can we do with this besides catch mice now that we have all this technology like what could like this isn't just a better phone it's also it's also a messaging device it's also a social device you can do all kinds of stuff with it and that's what that's that's why i want to challenge the field to think about these wearables and not just to be afraid of anything new i think it's interesting because when i do education sessions um to industry or to athletes in groups or small groups individually it's really interesting because to your point about, it's like the devices have generated these kind of standards nearly. You need to get X percent in REM and X percent 
of your sleep in in deep sleep. And I get people going, well, you know, my phone or my watch has said I only got 17% in deep right. sleep. Like, what am I supposed to get? I'm like, well, in general, who knows? Most people get about like, 20%. That's in general. That's very general. When you measure them in a laboratory, sometimes using polysomnogram at home, but like, how do we know what, first of all, if you're measuring one night at a time, who the heck even knows? Who knows? And then, and then yeah. you're wearing a device for 30 days. Um, you know, someone, was, someone asked me once, yeah, with these wearables, you can get, you know, estimated sleep stages across 30 days. What's the comparison to PSG? How do you, how do you evaluate PSG data over 30 days? So how can we compare them? And I'm like, they don't. There's no such yeah, thing yeah. as 30 days of polysomnography in anybody like that I could think that I've ever heard of, like yeah, in, in any person, much less the millions of people who yeah. are starting to look at this in wearables in the real world without any obtrusive head stuff. Mm. So who knows what we're going to do with these data in the future? And then when people come in complaining of, of or they, they ask about this, here's the analogy I use. I say, it's like, I don't want to dismiss your concern. Um, it's like I was a pulmonologist and I'm not a pulmonologist. And so I don't know if I have this analogy totally wrong, but it's like I'm a pulmonologist and you're saying, I'm worried about the gas exchange in my lungs. Am I taking in, is there a problem with the amount of oxygen I'm taking in and gas exchange in my lungs? And so my first question as not a pulmonologist would be, okay, is there, I, I don't know what your gas exchange is. I can probably measure it, but again, not a pulmonologist. But is there anything wrong with your lungs? Is there any reason why your gas exchange would be off? Do you have COPD, emphysema? Do you have a lung disease of some sort? And so if you do, let's fix that barrier. Let's, let's, let's treat that. It's not about the gas exchange. It's about the lung disease. Let's fix that. Okay, you don't have a lung disease. All right, are you, do you live in some place that's really polluted? Is there a problem with the air? Is the air just highly polluted and that's the problem and we need to get you some clean air? And so, and if not, then, okay, is your, your O2 sats fine? Um, your body's probably getting the gas exchange at once because there's nothing in its way from operating normally and it's not creating any, any outcomes that are a problem. So that's like when people come into clinic. So the, the, the equivalent to the lung disease would be, do you have untreated sleep apnea? Do you have like an autoimmune condition or chronic pain or another sleep disorder or something that's a barrier to prevent yeah. you from getting the proper sleep architecture? If so, I, I don't care what the sleep architecture is. Let's treat that problem and see if, see if you feel better. Okay, if you don't have one of those or, the one, or you've got it, it's treated as well as it could be, Go to the environment. Do you have a snoring spouse? Do you live on a busy street? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Is there something around that's preventing you from getting the right sleep architecture that's a physical barrier? Okay, let's get rid of that if we can. Um, third one is, okay, is there a mental barrier? Is it, do you have anxiety or depression or you have, do you have something that's, that's, that's creating a mental health issue that's preventing you from resting or whatever? Let's deal with that. If we get all that out of the way, and you feel okay during the day and you don't have functional deficits, I don't really care what your sleep architecture is, to be totally honest, because it's, it's not a signal, it's not a signal of a problem that I need to fix. Is, is getting X number of minutes of deep sleep, it's sleep architecture isn't a sleep disorder. There's no, there's no diagnosis yeah, yeah, of yeah. insufficient REM sleep. Um, there's no diagnosis of insufficient stage three. Like it's not, it's not a thing. It's a it's a marker of a problem, but if there's no problem that it's a marker of, then it's then it's probably not 
useful. And that's exactly my point to, to these comments as well. I say to people, yeah, sure, it says like a target, but as a human, those those variations in sleep stages will change every single night depending on a number of factors. And then people go, but what about 90 minute cycles? I'm like, that's a very <laughs> generic thing. That's going to change from night to night within you. And it's going right. to depend on a number of factors, whether you're sleeping during the day, whether you've had shift work and so on. But what's interesting, Michael, here is, um, as, you, as, as you know, I've studied some engineering and uh, <laughs> you actually think like an engineer. So I'm going to share this screen with you. Because I don't know if you're familiar with this, but have you ever seen this, uh, the Ishikari diagram? I can't, my Not in a very it. long time. So you, um, yes. Ishi, yeah. sorry, Ishikawa diagram. Ishikawa. Ishikawa, commonly known as the fishbone diagram. So I-S-H-I-K-A-W-A. So for anybody who studied engineering, process improvement, you may have seen this. And this is exactly what Michael was saying. Well, what is the effect? What is the actual problem? Like, are you sleepy? Are you tired? Are you not able to perform well on shift work, whatever it is? And then, Michael, you've just gone back and talked about all of these kind of causes or potential areas like environment or in this one here, example, it has materials, environment, management, people, process, equipment. And this is where you're trying to get back and diagnose exactly what's going on. And these little boxes here and the causes may change depending on what we're talking about. So like you're saying, Michael, the environment, do you have another lung problem? What's all these contributing factors? And I think what's happening is, People are looking at the device and going, well, I'm going to get an 18% stage three. I should be getting 20. And you go, what's the problem? There's no problem. I need to hit the metric. So people are kind of obsessed with the number as opposed to how they feel. And so they're letting the technology guide what they do during yeah. the day or at night. And they're getting hung up on something as opposed to the technology supporting them in whatever endeavor they're doing, whether it be a shift work, an athlete, or just general health and fitness. It's the tail wagging the dog, I find. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's a better analogy than I was coming up with, but because I, I find the same thing where when you give people a number, they assume it's it's somehow more true than anything that's not a number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, even so, there's my one of my pet peeves in in science in general um, when it comes to to people is is we mistake precision for accuracy, and we think that if we just because we have a number that was calculated in a, in a robust way that has lots of numbers past that decimal point, it's very precise. We assume that it's accurate and that it's true. Um, and I often have to explain this to, to, to my patients that they're like, well, why are you giving me a sleep diary or a sleep log instead of just putting a wearable on? Um, for insomnia, actually the sleep log is way more useful. And I say, look, the sleep log, yes, it's gonna have biases in it, you're going to have, you're not going to remember exactly how long it took you to fall asleep. It'll be a rough ballpark. This is why we're getting one to two weeks of data at a time. It's not going to be precise, um, but it's going to be true. And I'd rather a fuzzy picture that's true than a crystal clear picture that's wrong, mm -hmm. um, that has things in it that weren't there um, or that is missing key things because it's, it's focused, but it's focused in the wrong way. I'd rather a fuzzy picture that's true than a clear picture that's wrong. That's why like looking at each day's percentage, that's not really the point to me. To me, it's look, let's look at the overall pattern. And does the overall pattern tell us anything that's useful? If so, great. If not, you know, it's, it's a streak of color in the painting that didn't really go anywhere yeah. or mean anything. Um, but yeah, this whole idea of that, that it's possible that increasing precision and clarity doesn't necessarily give you more truth. It just gives you a sharper image that may or may not be real. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're making me you're making me think. <laughs> this is uh, this is interesting. So so Michael, um, let's say we move beyond just general tracking for, for yeah. sleep and wake. Sure, sure. And then people are like, oh my god, I've I've got a sleep problem. I've got a sleep disorder. Um, how can or can the wearable device be used then to help with diagnostic of a sleep of a sleep disorder, a treatment of a sleep disorder? And bearing in mind for people listening, there is over 70 recognized sleep disorders because I, it's like the more I talk to people, people just think there's one sleep disorder, obstructive sleep apnea, and that's it. (laughs) Yes, it is the most prevalent, but there is over 70. So how can these wearables help with this or can they? So, yeah, I I think the most useful thing that wearables can do in terms of sleep disorders is throw up some red flags. Like if you look at your wearable data and first of all, it, it looks something looks messed up, take it, you know, go in, go to a sleep specialist and say, Hey, my wearable data looks all messed up. And, and your, your sleep specialist will probably say, I have no idea what to do with this wearable data. I don't even want to look at it. And I don't care um, because most of, most of them have no idea how to interpret any of that stuff, but it doesn't matter. You're now in the door and they know what questions to ask you. And they know what assessments to do to see if you have a sleep disorder. I think the ability of these devices to diagnose and, and tell people that they have a sleep disorder or what sleep disorder they have, I don't know, ask me again in three to five years, I think my answer will be very different. But right now, I think it's one of these things that people are thinking about, but no one's been able to pull off well yet, even insomnia. So insomnia and sleep apnea, it's hard to say which one's actually more prevalent. Uh, everyone talks about insomnia more, but sleep apnea, most people who have it don't even know. So it's it's hard to know which is actually more. But um, insomnia, first of all, there's the insomnia disorder, which is sort of the condition that needs treatment. And then there's insomnia with like the lowercase i that like everyone gets sometimes and will often go away on its own and whatever. The difference being that if you have a, a, a significant difficulty falling asleep or or getting back to sleep during the night or being unable to sleep when you want to, um, like more than 30 minutes at a time where you're awake and trying to sleep. And, and that's happening at least three nights a week. And it's been going on for a couple of months. And it's causing you daytime problems. Sleep hygiene is probably not going to be good enough at that yeah. point. You know, stopping coffee and like spinning around three times before getting into bed or whatever ritual it is that, that helps you relax and wind down is probably not going to be enough to fix an insomnia disorder. Um, and your device may not pick it up. It may. Um, you may see big swaths of wake during the night. Um, if you have a movement-only device, it's going to have a hard time sometimes distinguishing laying there in bed awake, not moving for extended periods of time, and actually being asleep. Um, it is a problem sometimes. As the devices get better and use more signals, you might get better at detecting who's spending lots of time awake during the night. But again, remember what I was saying before, what a diary measures, what a wearable measures, and what a polysomnogram measures are totally different things. So when I said awake for 30 minutes of the night, it doesn't mean awake for 30 minutes of the night as measured by a wearable, because it's going to pick up 30 to 60 minutes more awake than you remember. It's 30 minutes of that you remember being awake, that you experience as wakefulness. Um, so don't, don't, don't fret about a, a wearable device that says, oh my gosh, I spent 50 minutes awake during the night out of my eight hours. I have 50 minutes of insomnia. It's like, no, you probably don't, unless you felt all 50 of those minutes, and then that's a problem. So if you see lots of choppiness during the night, if you see any, any signals in there that they're like, oh, this, this does not look good, 
at this point, I would say you just use that as as an alert to like make an appointment with a sleep specialist, even if they don't look at your wearable mm. data, at least they'll know where to go and figure out if you have a sleep disorder or not. I think um, a bit like with the Ishikawa diagram, the fishbone diagram we spoke about, I often said yeah. to individuals, um, particularly because I do a lot of work in mining and oil and gas, and um, I said to people in mining, uh, it's a bit like exploration drilling. You know, we, we in, exp- like in mining, we can fly these airplanes over, over land that send out a signal to basically go, oh yeah, there's lots of you know, copper, because you've got lots of copper there in Arizona, right? There's lots of copper there in that area. And it seems to be more at the surface or it's deep underground. So that's going to dictate whether it's an underground mine or an, or, a, or an open cut mine, right? And so then we, the next step then is we go down and we say, right, within this kind of five kilometer square grid, this is where we know we got a big kind of copper body. Then we'll start doing some exploration drilling around. So maybe every five kilometers or every 500 meters, we will start digging holes. And then we'll kind of, oh yeah, we got ore over here. And then from them, those samples and then into models, we get this kind of three-dimensional proposer, you know, would be like 70% sure that there's this ore body there that's oriented like at a 60 degree angle, which goes down for two kilometers. And then we kind of work out what's there and then that'll dictate the economics of, of the mine, how we develop it, if we develop it and so on and so on and so on. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's how we have to treat these sleep problems. It's like, okay, how do you feel? Um, what data have you got? you know, what's, a hap- what's happening in these different areas. So what you got to do then is go, right, that's the actigraphy data. Let's look at that. That gives us some of these outer stakes. Here's some questionnaires maybe about insomnia, the Berlin sleep questionnaire, for example, the upward sleeping scale. That gives us some more stuff. Then we look at where you live. Um, you know, we look at maybe, um, is that, because we know now as well, it's particularly a lot of that out of the US, particular neighborhoods with like disturbances and noise and violence or whatever it might be. Is is your sleeping environment, is that cause an issue? Then we'll look at your demographic, your other um, sort of individual anthropometric factors. Are you a male in your 40s and you're quite overweight? Right. Uh, you work shift work. So now we're starting to paint this picture. We have a guy that's 45, he's overweight, he's tired, high prevalent sleep apnea, he lives in a lower socioeconomic bracket. He's a truck driver. Uh, he's divorced. And when he's time off, he's traveling from Phoenix to Santa Fe to see his family. And now we're going, ah, look at all these things. Now we're kind of yeah. scoping and feeling out this problem. And now we have a size of it, as opposed to going on his actigraphy device. He's not getting 20% of REM, you know, or whatever right. it might be. Right. We're starting to explore and drill into these different areas. And then we actually identify the problem and then now we have this problem that we've defined and now we can chip it away with it with different interventions. So that's right. when you talk to the person and you say, right, you know, how can we maybe, you know, how can we stack these up like a Pareto chart and look at what's the worst problem that you have at the moment? Okay, daytime sleepiness. What can we do as the first line containment to right. stop your daytime sleepiness? Is it like modafinil medication? Is it CPAP? Is it weight loss? Is it all of those? Let's get this one down and hopefully then that will flow on into the rest of your daytime exactly. performance, into your shift work and how you feel and so on. Or does it require other things? So then we start testing. No, that's and that's a very patient-centered approach. That's yeah. how I like to do it, where it's where it's um rather than say, here are the tools I have and here are the problems I know how to fix, it's what are the problems you have? Yes. And how can I use what I know and what I can do to help address that problem? Um, and then go and, and then go from there. Um, yeah, I mean, and the wearables could also be useful as you're working with sleep disorders, where where so for example, wearables might not be great for diagnosing insomnia, but 
but mm-hmm. a lot of insomnia patients, they spend a lot of time awake at night. Something we often see is I was awake for hours at night, but what they were really doing is they were kind of dozing in and out little yeah, bits yeah. and they were perceived it as continuous wakefulness. But there were islands of sleep in there. And it's important to know if you're right on the edge of how much sleep you're getting and you want to know, okay, am I actually spending three hours awake? Or am I actually spending an hour awake, but most of it was actually asleep? I just didn't know it. Wearables could be great at detecting stuff like that, answering yeah. some of these questions and bringing some comfort to people and, or helping to guide treatment. Same thing with sleep apnea therapy. You can see if people are, you know, a lot of people with sleep apnea, you give them a CPAP, they're still sleepy during the day. Why? So you can use, sometimes use wearable data to see, oh, I see you're still very fragmented or, oh, I'm picking up lots of wakefulness in here. Or maybe you haven't still have insomnia or on top of your apnea or whatever. And you can use some of these devices, maybe not as treatment, but you can use them to maybe help guide your understanding of what's going on. Because sleep is, like I remember I said before, you can't ever measure it directly. They're all guesses. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't know, we, we don't know when it's happening or not happening. And so we have to go at it through these other directions. Yeah, I actually think that in some ways we nearly need to be a bit like a, an aircraft pilot. We're not just relying on one measure coming true, whether right. it be airspeed. We're looking at altitude, we're looking at pitch, we're looking at whatever it might be, rotation. So we have to have this dashboard of measures and we're constantly using all those different measures to guide where we're going with these things. We're not just relying on one single thing. And that can be hard for people, I think, to wrap their head around because I think good advertising um, with these devices has, you know, or stories or Instagram things that you click on for discounts, people love to reduce things down to a kind of a binary. This works, this doesn't work. And I think that's a bit too simplistic. And what's happened is people then kind of have bought into that narrative of this works. So then when you come up from a scientific approach and you go, okay, that's good. That's kind of picked on one thread, but now let's, let's explore that more like my exploration analogy. And that's where you start building more of a dashboard for that person. And it's interesting yeah. when you start building yeah. that dashboard, they get quite surprised. Oh, I never realized I actually had a sleep disorder. Like I've worked with some elite athletes where I've been like the questionnaires, what you're saying, the actigraphy data, this doesn't make sense. I want to do a PSG. Oh, no, no, no. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And you do it. And then you got an actual fact, you have X, Y, and Z. And they're like, what? I had no idea. I went, yeah. So yeah. until we, until we fix that, your downstream problems, when you travel, when you're tired, we can't fix those until we get to the root cause. Exactly. So that's, that's why we exactly. have to. And, and, and that's also course. why, that's also why screening is so important because like in any kind of occupational setting or athletic yeah. setting or anything, because you can't optimize someone's performance. It's like you can't doing, doing strength training and, and no strength training tips in the world are going to fix a broken leg. Um, you need a cast. Like if your leg is broken, stop doing stretch. There's no stretching that's going to mm. help. There's, you know, you, you need to, you need to get that problem fixed and out of the way first. And so a lot of people are so focused on some of these softer interventions about optimizing sleep or improving sleep health or sleep hygiene and stuff. When actually what they have is a sleep disorder that they need to get out of the way before any of that stuff's really even going to be helpful. Um, yeah. I think about it a lot like diet and nutrition where yeah, if you don't consume enough calories, your body can't function properly. But that's not the only metric that's relevant. Yeah, you also, yeah. There's all kinds of, like yeah, you said, there's a whole dashboard so on, yeah. of, of things. And I think where you, we've gotten used to that, that like, sure, we can't manage, we're not always managing all of them all the time, but we know that they exist um, and we can wrap our head around them to some degree. 
And with sleep, you know, sleep health is also multidimensional. There's amount, just like with food, but there's also the quality and the timing and the regularity. And within quality, you have, you know, lots of different elements there, just like we do with nutrition. It's just because the universe is complicated. You know, it's we're not we're not machines. Yeah. We live in a we live in a complicated world with lots of things. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Michael, are you familiar with the hierarchy of control out of safety management systems? Have you seen that? No. Well, yeah, I, I remember reading about it, but it was so long ago that like back when I was studying IO stuff, I don't remember. Yeah. So like, if you look at maybe the Swiss cheese model by James Reason, which we often see in fatigue risk management yeah. system, like layers yeah. or defenses in depth, there's also this thing called a hierarchy control, which is a triangle. And so basically it's, you know, to a risk, we need to either one, eliminate it, so if you're working with heights, don't work at heights. Substitution, <laughs> maybe maybe build a platform or use a, an elevated work platform or, you know, use some sort of engineering control. Then we go down to isolation. Then we go down to, you know, things like administrative controls. And then we go down to PPE, like personal protective equipment. Yeah. And I find this is what this is like when I, um, you know, for my industry work is the same thing as well. Is when we start kind of looking at the fatigue risk management system or lack of in a business, uh, or even with an individual, and we start going, right, you don't have a system, you have elements. If we map those elements back to your safety management system that people are familiar with in that terminology, so try and bring it back to something that people know, when we start mapping those back, 90% of those um, are basically administrative type of controls. We have a policy in place, we have sleep hygiene in place, we educate people, we've given people some checklists, and that's all we really do. There's there's very few businesses that will, as a part of a fitness for worker onboarding, that will actually do polysomnography to identify sleep disorders. Not so we can eliminate people from the business, but how we can identify right. people coming into the business to optimize, not just them as an employee in the business, but to optimize their longevity in the business and, yeah. and, their, and, and their health and well-being. Because numerous and lots of this work has come out with the US actually in, in um in what's called total worker, I think it's total worker health, TWH, I might be getting it wrong, but um, all of those, all of that numerous data have shown that if you look after an employee's health, which is more long-term, the payback is significant in terms of yeah. reduced absenteeism, reduced injuries, less turnover, better satisfaction, um, better productivity. You know, by looking after people, you, you get this long-term engagement. Who knew? Yeah, yeah, who, yeah, exactly. And it's a massive payback. Like, I can't remember the numbers, but it's massive compared to when you don't really kind of give a shit about people, they don't really give a shit either. So then there's like more time off, you know, they're basically the turnover because the cost of recruiting people is so expensive. Right. And and particularly for these companies. And that, the errors and the accidents yeah, and the injuries. It's crazy, you know. And, and, and particularly when we have people in remote areas like here in Australia of mine and oil and gas, trying to relocate someone to that area could be like up to a hundred thousand dollars. So it's a massive benefit um, economically. So if you, if like I, I often say to leaders, if you don't really care about the people care about the dollar, like, because yeah. we can lower your budget in the long term, and this kind of financial extrapolation needs to happen more often. But I think also at the individual level as well, it's like, because people roll their eyes and go, I don't believe I have sleep apnea. I don't give a shit. I'm not doing, I'm not buying a CPAP machine. You're just trying to sell me something. I'm like, Man, I don't sell CPAP gear. I'm just telling you what the treatment is. <laughs> if you had cancer and, you know, what would you do? Uh, go and get a treatment. Well, why, why don't you believe this? And it seems to be this thing that's, you know, sleep disorders yeah. aren't believed and you're just a shill and it's not real science and you're trying to sell them something and, it, and people just go on with it. And it's, it's kind of bizarre, like how we, for some people, how, that, how that's 
the case. I'm drifting here anyway, but well, I, I think I think it's because I think it just goes back to the, the the point that our society sees sleep as unproductive time, and and we have these sort of societal incentives to minimize the importance of sleep. That I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping over the last ten years or fifteen years we've been starting you know, all of us have been starting to chip away at a little bit, but mm. I think there's just this inherent bias about sleep being less important. When the yeah. truth is, I mean, it's, it's one thing I like to remind people is it, it is a non-negotiable um, biological requirement uh, alongside drinking water and breathing air. I mean, th those are all non-negotiable requirements. Um, yeah. there's, there's no way around them. I mean, food, you can almost sort of get around in terms of drinking, you can drink food, but um that's that's pretty much it. Air, food, water, and sleep. Uh, I don't know of any other biological requirements for human life. And and but but no but nobody says things like, you know, unpolluted air is for people who are lazy. You know, like they don't they yeah, don't yeah, say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and I think and I think that's we have this inherent bias about sleep being like less important. Um, but if we remind people that look, this is this is in the company of of like breathing and eating and drinking. Like this is just part of how our body works. You either you either take it seriously or you don't. Your body doesn't care. Like it's you. You're going to just have the consequences whether you do or not. I mean, you can eat like crap if you want to, but like your body's going to suffer the consequences. Yeah, yeah. You can breathe polluted air all the time if you want to, but your body's going to have the consequences. Yeah, I think that <laughs> you can go ahead. Like it's not going to affect me in terms of my health. Like it's. It's quite interesting. People get quite rare, yeah, with you. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's your body, not mine, you know? So it's, it's like, uh, it's like, I'm like, I don't make any money by giving anyone a CPAP machine. Like, it's yeah. too many any good. Yeah, yeah. People think it's some sort of scam, you know? It's like, <laughs> I'm like, man, it's no scam. And definitely in CPAP world these days, um, well, what happened recently with the recall. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it has not been a good year or two for, for CPAP between the cardiovascular trials yeah. and this. And, you know, if I, if I were, you know, if, if I were a patient, I'd be very confused. Well, you know, Michael, I actually just reflecting on this and, and we'll finish in a moment, but just reflecting on this, I thought if there was ever a case for, you know, reducing weight, body mass, this is it because yeah. so many people with obstructive sleep apnea, it's weight related as in body mass yes. related. And so I would say to those people now, this is what happens when you rely on these external devices to manage things. And yes, it can be a great Kickstarter to help you. But at the end of the day, you just need to lose that body mass. And on a separate note, I remember talking to a doctor a few years ago who's doing cancer research. And I said to him, what's the biggest thing that we can control to reduce our risk of cancer? And he said, really? This was about five, six years ago. He said, the biggest thing that I've seen is um, reducing body mass. And I said, what do you mean? Yep. It was like, regardless of, you know, if your BMI is 35 and you're 8% body fat, like a bodybuilder, regardless of that, if you can keep your body mass sort of between 20 and 25 and as a BMI, get down into those normal ranges, that is the biggest thing you can do. <clears throat> that trumps well, everything Well, it's, it's funny. In the, in the, um, you see the same stuff coming out of the Alzheimer's literature. If you're looking for population-level risk factors for developing dementia, the variables that seem to be emerging as the strongest risk factors are things like body weight, and, yeah. and heart disease and 
Like, what does that have to do with developing dementia? Well, it turns out it has a lot. The brain relies on blood flow and, and when your cardiovascular and metabolic uh, systems are disrupted and it's all tied with immune function and neuroprotection, you know, I, I think you're right. I think that this is, you know, we, we, live in, we live in great times, but, you know, part of the problem is our bodies are facing stresses that they never faced before. The old stresses are, are making way for new, the old stresses of not being able to find food are now being replaced. Well, what happens when we have too much food that's crappy? Um, and that isn't, the, and, and, and our society is sort of out of balance and evolution hasn't caught up yet. And so now we have these new issues. Mm. I think you're exactly right. Why isn't weight loss touted as first line first for, even with, you know, even with CPAP, you know, why yeah, is yeah, that yeah. not being pushed? Probably because it's, it's seen as futile, you know, but why, you know, can we do better? I mean, if you look at the data, weight loss for sleep apnea actually seems to be pretty darn effective um, if you could do it. Um, and cancer, Alzheimer's, anything, diabetes, you know, it seems to be an important thing. And I think your analogy around about diet is the same around with the sleep. So if you're talking about, you know, um, we know now that, you know, to lose weight is difficult from an individual perspective because of what you're saying, the abundance of food, how cheap it is. It's highly, you know, it's high calories, low in nutrients. So I used to think actually it was all just personal choice with obesity. Um, but obviously the older you get, you start changing your yeah. mind. You go, well, no, I could lose two kilos like that. And now I put on two kilos by looking at something. But it's also, and I spoke to a doctor here, actually, Dr. Norman Swan about this. And he's, he was on like the biggest loser. I was on his radio show a couple of years ago. And, and he said, it's not just about the individuals. It's about the food choices as well. I thought, oh yeah, that's actually interesting. And I think the sleep is somewhat the same because it's not just about the person's sleep. It's about all the other things that's expected from a society. You know, both yeah. parents working in a family unit, people trying to, expectation to answer emails after hours, expectations to answer phone calls, expectation to come in early. And then, oh, during lockdowns, it's great because we can have some family time or these restrictions. Oh, can you just jump on a meeting? But it's midnight here. Yeah, well, we've got to get the guys from <laughs> LA. It's like, wait now, where's the, where's the, where's the downtime? Where's the, where's the cracks? Like it's just a noise, external noise constantly, you know? And look, I'm as guilty as anybody for doing this as well. Um, and I probably got the luxury of absolutely loving what I do. So if I couldn't sleep and do this 24 seven, I would, I would just talk to people all day on this podcast and other things as well, because I love doing scientific research and scientific consultancy. I love it. So I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a very privileged position in that respect that I found what I love doing, but for you know, you know, if my, if my wife wasn't here, I'd probably just sit in his office <laughs> the whole time and sleep on the ground, even though it's a big house, I just sit in here. Um, but I think, um, it's the same thing as well. You know, the diet yeah. stuff, it's, it's just all that external noise coming in, but coming back to the yeah. CPAP thing, I think, you know, there is a big case here for basically an intervention because it's not just going to help your sleep apnea in terms of losing weight. It's going to help all these other things that you're talking about as well, Michael. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's true. Michael, I think that's a great place for us to end because we could go off down awesome. rabbit holes from here. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got yeah, about 50 other sure. million questions, but Michael, if people want to follow your work, access all the behavioral sleep medicine webinars, um, they want to get in contact with you to give you money to do research, hopefully some <laughs> rich person's yeah. out there wants to give you sure. millions. Um, how can they get yeah, in contact I mean, with you? So, so my website, michaelbrander.com, I'm sure you could put a link up because um it should, I should be pretty easy to find. And also our, our lab is um, sleephealthresearch.com. And that's where you can get access to all of our seminars and recordings and, and resources and all kinds of stuff for research. Yeah. 
And for anybody who wants to know, Michael, you are based in Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. If you don't know where Tucson, Arizona is, you need to watch An Officer and a Gentleman, and you will find out where (laughs) uh, Tucson, Arizona is. All right. Thank you so much. This is awesome. No worries, Matt. Cheers. Cheers.